When you heard of the news of the collapsed interstate, what was your immediate sort of reaction with like how the PMTA could be involved? Pushing 14,000 trucks, like you said, onto US-1 wasn't, wasn't going to go well. So our focus was to try to get as much information to the through truckers um, as we could to show them alternatives so that they could avoid the entire region altogether because of the congestion that was gonna result. Hey everyone, and welcome to our podcast, Caution Wide Right. It's just another trucking podcast. Now with me today is not just a local Girl Scout troop leader, which my daughter would be excited to hear. Of course, that's if a nine-year-old girl would like to listen to her dad talk about trucking regulations for an hour. But even better with me is Rebecca Euler, none other than the president and CEO of the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association, which has been promoting the interests of the trucking industry since 1928. Imagine that, uh, how, how long cars have been around. Trucking Association has been here the whole time. Uh, Rebecca comes from a policy writing uh, background with nearly 20 years in state government where she advanced policy and legislative initiatives involving uh, economic development, elections, voter registration, and more. Before joining PMTA, she served as the Pennsylvania Legislative Director for the National Federation of Independent Businesses, which is a premier small business advocacy organization about 13,000 members in Pennsylvania and 300,000 members nationwide, really getting her work cut out for uh, the role for the PMTA and what she's doing today, advocating uh, for businesses. Um, she also taught as an adjunct uh, faculty in Millersburg, uh, Millersville University Department of Government and Political Affairs, a graduate of the Executive Leaders Program, and is a member of the Women in Pennsylvania Government Relations Finally, last year, America Trucking Association presented its Trucking Association Executive Council Leadership Award. And you guessed it, Rebecca uh, last year was named the recipient for her advocacy efforts on behalf of the industry. So Rebecca, welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to be here, Luke. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, incredible background. And before we begin, Toby, our cameraman, has a daughter. I myself have a little girl uh, and she's in Girl Scouts. I'm curious, like, what advice do you have for girls out there looking to uh, become future leaders in our state or country? Well, I think that's easy. I would say be bold, find your passion and just remember that you were put on this earth at this time for a specific reason. Find your passion and go with it. Don't let anyone or anything hold you back. Do it. And so as a Girl Scout troop leader, I'm just curious, what's your favorite pastime or activity involved with the girls? Well, I always have to say that my favorite thing is being outdoors because I'm an outdoors person. I love hiking, camping, fishing, just splashing around in the creek. And those are the things I always try to get my girls out and do. Um, but my girls uh, really enjoyed, uh, they, they still do enjoy community service a lot. So of course, like all Girl Scout troops, we sell cookies every year. Yep. And every year um, our girls voted on uh, what they uh, wanna give their 
donation cookies for, and they really try to get uh, donated cookies as much as they can. So this past year, I was really proud of them because I promised there was no influence involved <laughs> from me, but they voted this past year to uh, donate their cookies to truck drivers. So we had about 130 boxes of donated wow. cookies, which we gave out at the uh, the state truck driving championships yep. a couple weeks ago. So uh, that was really exciting. And I, I have to think I've done something right <laughs> in the troop to get them to focus on truck drivers. So very so, happy. So your girls, uh, that's, you know, they're involved in Girl Scouts. Were you originally involved in Girl Scouts as a kid too, a brownie or what yeah. got you as a leader? Yep. I, I was a, a Girl Scout all the way up until I was about 12 or 13. Yeah. And then I have to be honest, I got bored <laughs> because uh, we, I, and I'll just tell you a, a funny story. We were sitting in the church basement um, making campfires with candlesticks yep. um, one time. And I thought, this is silly. I can be out making real campfires. Mm -hmm. I wanted, I want to do that. So I didn't last too long. I think our troop was not as active as I preferred to be. And I was on my own on the weekends anyway. So I, I, I quit when I was about 12 or 13, but then when I became a troop leader, I made it my mission to get my girls outside, you know, in nature, uh, learning how to make a real campfire yep. and making those s'mores and out in uh, nature hiking and um, and all of that stuff. So that was really my, my big goal when I became a troop leader is to make sure my girls did not get bored. And that, that happened because we had started with, uh, nine girls a few years ago and we still have nine girls. So yep. that's really awesome happy about that. And they're, and they're seniors now. So oh, wow. all 15. So you've moved up with the, mm -hmm. the age group as you went. Yeah. That's yep. cool. That's cool. Yeah. I know, uh, my son's in boy Scouts and of course my daughter's in girl Scouts and there's moments where I'm like, I can, I can, well, I was involved in, in Boy Scouts as a kid or my dad's military background. And so I'm like, they, they have dad's approval of doing a little bit more as well. So, uh, you know, teaching them how to properly handling a pocket knife or mm -hmm. different things like that. It's definitely a, uh, definitely interesting seeing the difference. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But well, we've done pocket knives. We've done knots. We've done yep. all the things that we can do. Um, you know, try to try to teach those skills to the girls because it's important. I think yeah. it's important for Girl Scouts to learn those things. Completely agree. Um, all right, so let's transition to some recent news that's actually been in the national headlines, I-95. So just two weeks ago, a tinker truck tipped over and caught fire under the exit ramp of I-95 in Philly, uh, causing a massive fire, uh, collapsed the roadway, of course, killing the driver. And this horrible news is not just tragic for the families involved, but the chaos that came from it from the trucking and logistics industries um you know the, until the road is fixed which was anticipated to take many months potentially uh, and ironically the roads open in in 12 days now you mentioned in a transport topics article that an estimated 14,000 trucks cross that section of road daily and the port of philadelphia is nearby there's seven million tons of cargo uh annually going in and out of there when you heard of the news of the collapsed interstate, what was your immediate sort of reaction with like how the PMTA could be involved? Well, it's funny. Uh, we had, I mentioned the truck driving championships. We had mm -hmm. our truck driving championships dinner the night before this mm -hmm. happened. So we had about 930 people in a room and, you know, highlight of the year, truck driving, you know, and our drivers were just, you know, the focus that weekend. And we woke up Sunday morning to that and it was just tragic and uh, just awful. Um, and that, you know, that said, um, like you said, 12 days later, um, the interstate was open. 
But uh, from PMTA standpoint, our first thought, um, and the first thought I had when I found out the news is just get the information out. Right. Because as we all know, the trucking industry, you know, is resilient. And if you give them the information that they need uh, to make good decisions, they can make decisions. So our first thought was to get as much information as we could out to our members and to the public at large and the industry. So we quick sent an email out. We started posting information on our website and we just put as much information as possible out so that uh, the industry and uh, truckers going through and into the area would have as much information as possible. So of course we shared PennDOT's official uh, detour information. Um, we shared the uh, PA511 um, website as well as PennDOT's information yep. and just tried to share as much information as possible right away. I know the news was also changing rapidly. Uh, of course, I was following it on social media and you got the people that like to overblow situations of like, what is it hauling? How did the bridge actually collapse? Uh, it couldn't just be a normal fire. All this drama that went yeah. around it, um, which is always crazy because then you're like, you can't correct everybody right. from something like that. And you, you just want to deal with the situation. Look, yeah. We have a real situation here. Let's focus on managing it. So totally. that's what we had to do. And uh, you mentioned, of course, that uh, the official detour was US-1 and that that could greatly impact traffic and congestion, obviously. Uh, but, but what's less known is that that is a big concern for safety for our drivers because uh, disrupting routes, congestion, it leads to crashes. Um, you know, pushing commercial vehicles to roads not designed to, to trucks creates its own problems. When PMTA asked the state to consider some of these issues, what or how are these decisions made and how quickly can, can things change uh, with, with your advice? Well, um, it's interesting. Uh, we were talking to PennDOT right away, uh, mm -hmm. Sunday morning, and we were putting out the official uh, detour information. But our initial thought too was that we're talking about sort of two categories of truck here. Uh, we're talking about the through truckers that are literally just going, uh, you know, through the area on 95, we need to get them out of the area because right. we that uh, detour on US-1, pushing 14,000 trucks, like you said, onto US-1 wasn't, wasn't going to go well. So our focus was to try to get as much information to the through truckers um, as we could to show them alternatives um, so that they could avoid the entire region altogether because of the congestion that was going to result. So... The bigger problem actually was the, the uh, trucks who were delivering and picking up those local businesses right in that region. Right. And a lot of them were located right near the bridge um, and uh, right along uh, Route 1 there, which, like, as you said, is not designed for trucks. Yep. So we knew we were going to see a lot of uh, problems, and we did hear some businesses that weren't getting deliveries. We know there were some members that just had to stop delivering or picking up in those areas just because of the congestion um, in the area. So we knew that was the biggest concern and we did talk to PennDOT about that. And I think their response was to just, again, put out as much information as possible. So they did uh, revamp their deep, their local detours a little bit. Right. Um, they adjusted their signage um, and uh, just, and I think the other thing that's worth mentioning is now we have, um, you know, we all have GPS uh, you right. know, systems. We can all go online and look at the traffic. They even, I, I had so much fun sitting in my office, well, if you can call it fun, <laughs> in Harrisburg. And 
right across the river from Harrisburg, looking at cameras on yep. uh, on the roads in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. which, um, you know, you could see, you know, what the congestion was like um, on the Schuylkill Expressway, for example, which was part of the detour. Um, and you could see how traffic was adapting to uh, the closure. And that was really interesting. And I do think PennDOT adapted itself to some of those uh, natural uh, detours that that some of these uh, companies and some of the drivers were taking. Uh, so it was interesting to watch. Um, from our perspective at PMTA, we were trying to make folks aware of uh, the impact on those local trucks that were trying to get in and out of those businesses because that region of Philadelphia was high manufacturing, right. uh, food uh, suppliers, um, small businesses that needed to get uh, pickups and deliveries there. So not to mention the port, like you said. Well, yeah, you mentioned the food suppliers. I mean, the port too, like I think you mentioned in the article that over 54% of the the stuff going through the port is refrigerated goods. It's yeah. produce, uh, which- Lots of reefer trucks. Right. And they might be going up through to New York or wherever. And I know during our time uh, during this, we're like, hey, you might want to consider going through the New Jersey Turnpike. Turnpikes are no fun for everybody, extra costs. But you mentioned that you had to work with the New Jersey Motor Truck Association as well. How's that partnership look? What was those discussions like? It's kind of interesting to think that this specific section of Interstate 95 um, there are a lot of routes around it, luckily. Right, right. So a lot of the through traffic already was taking 295 over to the Jersey Turnpike. So right. we talked about that and uh, we're aware that that was the way a lot of traffic was going to divert. So it was kind of keeping an eye on that um, and what the impacts would be. And so it was more along those lines uh, because we were aware that that was uh, a route that a lot of the tr through trucks were already taking. So right. it was just going to increase the congestion likely on those routes. Now, talking to our members, a lot of them also routed around the region by going the Pennsylvania Turnpike. So we know that was also the case. And um, even some even farther out to the west, 83, 81, 78. And it's like I said, uh, truckers are resilient. They're going to find a way. Yep. Just give them all the information they need. Now, one thing that was interesting is... I drove around a lot. I didn't go to Philadelphia. I haven't been there yet, but drove around some of the other interstates and I noticed a lot more truck traffic, um, you know, at the rest areas right. and things like that. So I do think that there was a lot of diversion of the through trucks um, onto the surrounding interstates, which isn't a bad thing. And right. I, it was a temporary situation and I think everyone made the best of it. So, I mean, yeah, for it taking less than two weeks for at least continued traffic, I think it's one lane right now getting through, but still it's better than nothing. And I mean, really? it's three lanes. Oh, three lanes. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, and I know of course, you know, cause when this stuff kind of happens, it's like, okay, well, what about truck parking? Cause Philly is a big area. Yeah. And then if it's going to be less diverted through Philly, you gotta, where are, who's, truck parking is an issue anyway. Uh, well, and that's one of the things we were trying to communicate during this period is, look, if trucks are getting off the highway and they're getting into some of these back streets in Philadelphia, which they were, mm -hmm. some very small back streets in Philadelphia, um, sometimes they're going to need to pull over and stop. Um, so be patient, you know, be understanding right. that, that this is a situation that we, we have to deal with. It's not the trucker's fault. It's nobody's fault. It's just something that's going to, we're just going to have to deal with for a little bit. So we were trying to get the word out about that as well. And I thought it was interesting. You mentioned the Pennsylvania turnpike. And I think, I know during the time, I mean, obviously it's more tolls, more cost associated with, uh, for these trucking companies to have to deal with. 
Uh, in fact, I think, uh, I forget who, a recent article, Landline or somebody said that the cost of operation operation uh, for a trucking company was the highest it's ever been, $2 a mile. Um, and PMTA was looking into a toll fee waiver uh, in those coming days and weeks. With it open, did that go anywhere? Is it still being something pursued? No, that, uh, like we said, the interstate was open yeah, so quickly at 60% capacity that it wasn't something that we actually had time to move because in this case, because the turnpike authority to toll is actually a legislative authority. It comes, oh, okay. it comes from the general assembly. So we would have had to get a bill passed um, mm -hmm. in the state legislature and that takes a little bit of time. So um, that we didn't end up having to go that route um, in this case, but we, we did start asking the questions as to whether that would be possible. And then obviously they're still working on the bridge. Uh, it's going to take obviously months, but, but I mean, that's part of the process, get the roads open and then finish, finish it up at a decent pace. Uh, and I believe, I think yesterday, uh, you know, the house passed a resolution to try to keep funding for, you know, this construction and, and this effort being funded is PMTA a part of continued process with this or what's the future for PMTA and the I-95 stuff? Well, we're just going to continue to be supportive of, uh, getting the interstate, uh, you know, back up to 100% capacity and getting it fixed. Um, there was a disaster declaration that was required um, in order to get the funding, the federal uh, funding to get it fixed. And we obviously supported that. We're continuing to be supportive of, of getting their state back to 100%. Very cool. So we can see a little bit about how PMTA helps the trucking industry in the state. Um, when I was a part of the Oregon Trucking Association before moving out here, uh, I was often came across drivers, owner operators, even small and larger fleets sort of not understanding what these trucking associations do for them. Um, and obviously they're not spending the time emailing legislation uh, or, or, you know, complaining about certain things. They're not going on capital to comment on bills and stuff being passed uh, and so much more. What does it mean to be a member of the PMTA and, um, you know, how does the organization help trucking companies? Sure. Uh, well, we have about a little over 1,200 members right now in Pennsylvania. And uh, those are trucking companies, small and large, all the way from, you know, single uh, owner operators all the way up to the big, the biggest companies in the nation. Um, and uh, we also have a lot, I, I think at PMTA, we actually have a, a lot of small businesses. So think of your businesses that drive trucks, but aren't necessarily thought of as trucking companies. Yep. Um, and we have a lot of those in our membership as well. But then, of course, we also have the companies that support uh, trucking, um, even if they aren't trucking companies proper. They sell products, services, well, like CNS, uh, to uh, to our members and to trucking companies in the state. So um, those are also members of ours. And um, what we do is sort of a three-pronged approach. Um, we have uh, our uh, legislation and regulatory um, area where we promote uh, policies that are that are going to lead to success in the trucking industry right. here in Pennsylvania, and we'll probably get into some of those here <laughs> during our discussion. Um, so regulations and legislation, um, and like you said, um, your typical trucking company owner doesn't have time to go, you know, sit up on the hill and listen to hearings all day. So we kind of keep monitoring that and let let everybody know what things are happening up on Capitol Hill. Um, so that's the first part. The second part is networking. We actually uh, try to promote um, 
you know, networking amongst our companies so that you can stay up to date uh, in the, the latest news and information in the industry and the latest products and all those types of things. Um, so networking is a big part of what we do. And lastly, but not least, certainly is safety. Uh, we promote safety um, and uh, in two ways, actually. We, uh, we'll, we're happy to take safety questions, uh, promote safety um, you know, products and, and uh, we have a safety day where it's a, a big focus of what we do every year um, and answer safety questions. Safety is a big part of what we do. We have a safety management council that uh, meets on uh, safety issues continuously. But um, the last thing or the second part of the safety aspect is we actually try to teach the public how to drive safely around big trucks too, which I think is a very important thing that's kind of lacking right now um, in, you know, in education. So we have a road team and we try to promote public information that, that uh, talks about no zones Mm -hmm. and, and following distance and uh, all those things that uh, help drivers out on the road understand how to drive safely around big trucks. So and that's why we titled the, the podcast Caution Wide Ride. It's exactly. that same same sign, same imagery. And I, I think that's fascinating because obviously what's the statistic that uh, 70% of, of crashes involving a commercial motor vehicle is not caused by the truck. It's caused by the everyday driver. Yeah. So Right. So we do what we can to try to head that off. Yeah. And, and I know, you know, it's always, I think owners, uh, trucking companies, no matter what size you gotta go check out and go on, uh, your, to your state capital and actually be involved with your organization to s- talk with legislation and legislators getting part of that process. Cause just seeing it and seeing how these things work is just fascinating to me. Um, and, and it's relationships, right? Cause uh, you, you talk in the ear of legislators uh, and you're building these relationships. Tell me a little bit about that. How, how does it, how do you build that? Yeah. Relationships are critical. I have to tell you, it's probably the most important part of the legislative, um, aspect of what we do. And you mentioned sort of going up and meeting legislators. Uh, that's really important, but on the flip side, um, it's really important too to get the legislators out to you. Yes. So one of the things we've tried to do is um, get some of these uh, state senators, uh, state representatives, and also congressmen uh, to come visit a trucking company, uh, sit down and talk to the the owner, uh, listen to some of the the concerns and the challenges that they have because. Everyone knows there's lots of them in the industry. There's plenty to talk about. So um, that has been very successful. Um, We started having legislative events a couple of years ago where we'll do that just that. We'll find a member who's willing to host an event and we'll invite all the local lawmakers to come sit down and talk to PMTA members and try to get the room full and just have a conversation. And that has gone so well. I've been so pleased because we built a lot of really good relationships that way. Uh, one one uh, event that we had out in Western Pennsylvania a few years ago, I actually was up on the hill at a hearing or something talking to a state uh, representative who was at that particular hearing. And he said, oh, hey, you know, I'm so glad I got to come to that meeting. I called, you know, you know, the gentleman that I met there and he was telling me all about um you know, this issue that I had a concern with, and he actually came on site and we talked. And so that's the kind of relationship that we really need. And we need, it's, you know, it's a difficult, it's a complicated industry trucking. And, um, the lawmakers that, that were, were trying to advocate, um, and educate about the industry, they, most of them don't know the first thing about it. 
So it really is an education and look at it as um, you're trying to educate a decision maker, a policymaker that's making policies in Harrisburg or in Washington uh, for your industry. And if they don't know the first thing about your industry, how are they going to make good decisions? Exactly. So it's a matter of uh, educating them and then being available to answer questions. Yes. So we're just trying to make uh, links between our membership um, and be a resource where we can provide information for the policymakers um, from our membership right. um, so that we get good policy out of Harrisburg and Washington. And I'm curious too, because you took over the role uh, during really the midst of the pandemic. What was it like? Uh, obviously you probably couldn't go you know, in person to uh, build these relationships or whether it's the mask mandates or whatever, um, or even, you know, just, you know, maybe there was a sympathetic ear for the trucking industry because they realized how needed it was uh, getting stuff into grocery stores and things like that. What were, what was the pandemic like with, with that? Yeah. So I started in February of 2021. So it was, we were just coming out of the pandemic. Right. We did have our annual membership conference virtually that year, yep. uh, which was tough. Um, I think we all found that really tough because we work in an industry that generally does not work remotely. Right. So all of us sort of struggle with that. Um, but uh, we really tried to have in-person events as soon as we possibly could. Um, so we did have legislative events in person that year. We did. Uh, I traveled out as soon as I started. I started going out and meeting companies and meeting owners and learning about the industry and talking with folks about it. So um, we I just really tried to dive in and we tried to get up and running as quickly as we could after the pandemic. But to your point, I think that the pandemic if there was anything good to come out of it, really did shine a light on truck drivers, supply chains. I mean, nobody, you can't talk to anybody anymore who doesn't have an opinion about supply chains or right. understand supply chains um, and appreciate truck drivers. And I hope that doesn't go away anytime soon. I really do. Feels like it, but it's, uh, it's something that we got to continue to press, continue to educate. And we that's do. the whole point. That's the whole point of this. Yeah. Yeah. So according to the ATA president, Chris Spear, uh, in the last couple of years, you've excelled in revamping the association, scoring multiple legislative victories in the process. And he specifically pointed out the bridge tolls. Um, so Pennsylvania DOT, PennDOT had been pursuing, I think it was like nine, nine different uh, high bridges for more tolls, uh, especially for truck truckers. And you spearheaded an effort to, it involved building an opposition coalition, engaging the public and the media to bring attention to it, and then working closely uh, to mount a legal challenge throughout this. And then the PMTA, the court sided with the PMTA-led coalition that ruled PennDOT failed to follow proper procedure pursuing the bridge tolling initiative. I'm just curious, tell me a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, well, Actually, it was funny. Uh, it was right around the time I uh, started at PMTA. I think the second day I was there, I did an <laughs> interview on TV about that specific uh, issue. So um, it kind of got baptized by uh, bridge tolling. <laughs> baptized by bridge tolling. I love that. Um, but yeah, it was a huge issue, uh, one that would have affected all of our members. Yeah. Uh, PennDOT was planning to toll nine interstate bridges across the state in every corner of the state, uh, four on uh, Interstate 80. So if you were traveling from one side of the state to the other, you'd actually cross four toll bridges. Yep. And we did the calculation, and uh, for cars, they were talking about $1 to $2, but for trucks, 10 to $12 yeah. per crossing. 
So uh, we did the calculation. It would have been five to six thousand dollars per truck per year, which um, you know some people thought that wasn't a lot. But if you take that times the number of trucks and the number of crossings that a lot of our members and a lot of you know companies in Pennsylvania um, cross those bridges quite a lot, especially right. the ones located near the bridges obviously are going to be impacted the most. Um, it would have had a huge impact on the industry in Pennsylvania. Um, like we're talking, you know, over time, billions of dollars of costs um, layered on top of an already expensive industry here in Pennsylvania. We are already the third most expensive state to drive a truck in. Right. So um, it would have been just devastating. Um, but I think the most galling thing about that um, proposal was that they it was a COVID, um, mm -hmm. you know, project. They didn't do any public notification about it. It was a virtual meeting of the public-private partnership board at PennDOT where they announced this proposal and voted on it with, I think there were four slides that the board was showing. Oh, my gosh. Um, so... We wouldn't have even known about it except our lobbyist in Harrisburg alerted us, hey, I just heard something. Maybe you should tune into this P3 board hearing, which, of course, was virtual. So uh, tuned in and big surprise. There was a bridge tolling vote. Um, so it was just really galling how that happened because, you know, we all try to trust our government. And there are certain processes that that you need to go through in order to be um, responsive to to the citizens of, right. of the state and voting on a, a you know, a, a public private partnership board voting on a, on a virtual meeting in the middle of a pandemic to impose tolls on everybody in Pennsylvania, yeah. which yeah. we believe is a tax um, is just not the way things should be done. So we fought it from the very beginning, from that very first P3 board meeting all the way through the end. And like you said, uh, we, we fought it a couple different ways, educating people about it, um, educating them about the costs involved and about how, you know, processes weren't followed. They didn't announce it ahead of time. There was no public comment period before it was voted on. There was just no process followed. Um, we fought it legislatively. We started talking to lawmakers and using those uh, relationships that you talked about, um, calling up friends uh, in, in Harrisburg and saying, you know, did, were you aware this was happening? Did right. your constituents know this is happening? And a lot of our members did that. They called their uh, state senators. They called their state representatives and were really pushing back because they used those relationships they already had. Um, and then the legal challenge, like right. you said, um, there were uh, some municipalities outside of Pittsburgh that filed a lawsuit challenging the process mm -hmm. because this was just a faulty process. And we submitted a, an amicus friend of the court brief on that lawsuit. There was another lawsuit filed in central Pennsylvania too. Um, but the court, uh, tossed out, um, it was a two part, two parts, two separate cases, but, um, ultimately the case that we filed our amicus brief on, uh, tossed the, uh, the, P3 uh, proposal out, right. stopped the nine bridge tolling. Yep. And then a few months later, the General Assembly passed a law that prohibited it. So it was really, I called it a three strikes and you're out because there, <laughs> there were two lawsuits um, with a decision in our favor. And then the law finally passed, uh, which was spon sponsored by Senator Langerholtz um, and actually outlawed um, what they did um, with the, through that process. The and so process. are we hearing any other news uh, that maybe they're trying other efforts to, for more tolls in other ways? Well, like I said, that law that passed, Senator Langeholt's bill, um, 
would prohibit that from happening in the future. If they try to do a P3 with tolls in the future, there's a lot of requirements that would yeah. have to happen. It would have to be approved um, through the General Assembly. There would have to be a public comment period. It would have to be transparent. It would have to be published so we would all know about it ahead of time. The way it should be. <laughs> uh, exactly. Um, and then it can only be on optional options and new um, and new infrastructure. Okay. So if they were building a, a, another lane onto an interstate and wanted to charge a toll for that specific lane, they'd be allowed to do that, but not for currently existing free uh, interstate roads. So um, there's a lot of hoops you would have to jump through to, to, to do that in the future. And that's, if I can add that yeah. too, that's important because um, we know New York is dealing with congestion tolling right now. Um, I think by defeating this bridge tolling uh, effort in Pennsylvania last year, we were able to head off um, because PennDOT had things like congestion tolling and uh, full um, interstate tolling in mind um, after they finished the bridge tolling. Right. So that's not going to happen now, at least not through a P3 process. It would have to take an act of the General Assembly. So I don't think we'll be looking at things like congestion tolling that, that um, anytime soon that New York is dealing with. And I'm curious, as relationships with other uh, maybe trucking associations in other states, are they reaching out to you discussing, like, uh, are there other examples in their states that they can sort of follow something similar or push for? Uh, well, generally, we all do work together as much as we can. So uh, whether there's a lawsuit or a specific, you know, legislative victory that, that a state has, we sh like to share it with each other so that we can, yeah. you know, take good examples and, and follow the lead elsewhere. And one place that that's happening right now is lawsuit abuse reform. Um, we're making, we're trying to across across the country. We're trying to make a big push for lawsuit abuse reform. Um, so here in Pennsylvania, we're trying to get a bill introduced right now to allow um, to allow seatbelt use to be introduced into court. There's a seatbelt gag rule in Pennsylvania, and mm -hmm. it's hard for a lot of people to believe. But even though you're required by law to wear a seatbelt in Pennsylvania, that can't be introduced into court um, mm. right now. So we're, we're trying to get that uh, changed. That's a, that's a difficult change. Um, anytime you talk about, you know, changing processes that lead to lawsuit abuse, it's a, yep. it's a, it's a steep hill to climb, but we're working on that. But I know a lot of states have been very successful and we're trying to rack up the victories there. I like it. And so the most recent news uh, surrounding PMTA is that in the last week or two, PMTA and the four members are suing the Department of Environmental Protection, the DEP, over CARB regulations. And this is where I got to transition to here because there's so much detail to discuss about CARB. So we need to do a quick little history lesson. CARB is the California Air Resource Board. You've probably heard about it with uh, the heavy push for uh, in California for electrification, uh, emissions, strong emission standards for engines in the state, uh, and then other other states are potentially adopting these things. Um, and and so where did all of this? Where did California get this ability? Uh, and so specifically, California has the unique power to design its own vehicle emission standards because in 1970, the Federal Clean Air Act gave California the authority to deal with the smog. Uh, around Los Angeles. So other states cannot adopt their own emission standards as far as I uh, can tell. Instead, they have two options, either adopt the strict California emission standards or use the federal standards, which are less strict. 
Now, today there are 16 other states that have adopted or partially adopted or um, are looking to adopt into California's uh, strict emission standards. Specifically in Pennsylvania, it was 20 years ago that uh, Pennsylvania DEP adopted CARB's emission standards, uh, specifically referencing for the diesel-powered vehicles weighing over 14,000 pounds. And so as a result, anytime CARB revises its rules, Pennsylvania's heavy-duty diesel emissions control program has to automatically update to adopt the California rules. There's still a process in place. And while this is interesting, the crazy part about all this is that there's more strict regulations that CARB adopts over time. Specifically, August 2022, CARB adopted uh, Governor, uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom's zero emissions um, program uh, by 2035. So it relied on heavy vehicle technologies such as plug-in hybrid uh, electric vehicles, battery electric, and hydrogen fuel cells electric to meet the air quality and climate emission standards for the state. Of course, that has a knock-on effect for other states adopting it relatively automatically. Uh, these regulations include increasing stringent standards for gasoline cars, heavy passenger trucks to continue to reduce the smog emissions. And the advanced clean truck regulation would require that by 2045, every truck in Pennsylvania be zero emission. That's just over 20 years. And the California rule is estimated to have like 300,000 zero emission trucks on the roads by 2035. And that's a lot in just like a 10 year time frame. Even though Pennsylvania was one of the 15 states to sign on to CARB's advanced clean truck regulation in 2020, uh, there'd still be, uh, DEP would still be required to promulgate new regulations through a public process. Rebecca, I'm curious, how do these regulations have a catastrophic impact on the transportation industry? Well, that's a lot to talk about. <laughs> <It is. laughs> uh, emissions regulations are very complicated, yeah. but initially how my attention came to it is uh, two years ago during the summer, right before 2020, um, so it would be the summer of 2021, we had some dealer members of ours come to us and say, hey, yep. uh, trucks are really increasing in cost next year. Uh, this is a real problem for us. And come to find out, uh, the problem was that because we were tied into these CARB California emission standards um, from 20 plus years ago, um, and they were changing in 2022 to, um, in the 2022 uh, regulations only required um, an additional warranty be purchased right. on, the, on right. the truck. So that didn't change the engine. It was the same engine, same truck, same truck, period, that was sold elsewhere. But the cost was going up between $2,300 and $4,500 per truck just because of the warranty, the mandatory warranty. Um, so I started asking a lot of questions. Well, how did this happen? What, you know, how do, how do we get here? And so that's how we figured out that we had, um, you know, signed on to this emissions standard 20 years ago. Um, and it was going to be affecting us starting in 2022, but, um, stepping up, like yep. you said, so that, um, more and more onerous emissions requirements are going into effect over the next couple of years, including in 2024, and then again in 2027, in which um, those two years, we have uh, extremely strict um, CARB emissions right. uh, standards going into effect. So up until recently, um, those CARB standards hadn't been a huge problem because there really wasn't any difference between those standards and, and the EPA standards. Um, but 
it's going to be a huge problem from here on out because it will be difficult to um, it will be difficult to purchase trucks um, across the country that comply with the California standards because right. it, a it's difficult to produce them. Um, 2024, not so much, but in 2027, it's going to be difficult for the manufacturers to to figure out the best solution to comply with the standards. And then once they figure it out, just getting enough trucks out to uh, you know meet demand is a right. whole another issue. So uh, there's a huge possibility that there won't be trucks available in certain classes that comply with uh, California standards. So in order to uh, protect the Pennsylvania's trucking industry, which course, is a huge industry and um, responsible for a lot of jobs and economic growth in the state. Um, we thought it best just to try to um, get a handle on this and see if we could get out from underneath the California yep. standards. Because fundamentally, we just don't think it's fair that uh, California regulators uh, regulate Pennsylvania trucks. And I'm curious because obviously, you know, it was adopted 20 years ago. Uh, for Pennsylvania to do that. Has there been past uh, examples where, you know, DEP was sued over carb regulations in the past? Not that I know of. Okay. Yeah, I'm not aware of any. I, it hasn't been an issue um, until recently, I believe. So. Yeah, and I know, I mean, you got the the manufacturers are suing CARB specifically in California over, over this. And I, I can't remember if that actually, uh, they just settled or something with, with this process. But then there's also, of course, two other states. Of the 15, 16 states that are involved uh, with adopting CARB, uh, you, well, you got Minnesota and you got Virginia fighting it in their own way as well. Uh, Minnesota is fighting it. Uh, they're suing as well. And they're claiming specifically that the requirements violate um, EPCA. That's their Energy Policy and Con Conservation Act, which creates, actually, it's the governments, uh, the federal governments, um, EPCA. So it creates a uniform national standard for vehicle fuel efficiency, prohibits states from adopting other standards that contradict federal fuel economy standards. And so they're suing CARB basically what seems like out of existence. I don't know if you're aware of, of this legal battle. Well, I know uh, there are, I think, 15 other states attorneys general who mm -hmm. are actually suing the federal government for turning over uh, national regulations to CARB. Right. Essentially, oh, um, wow. that uh, should be uh, should be illegal. Because it's like you said, uh, states have two choices. Uh, they can either choose to go along with the CARB standards or stick to the EPA federal standards. But I, I mean, I'm not an attorney, but I don't know of any other law where you can choose to follow another state or go with the federal right. It's just, it's so awkward, um, right. it's so strange. And why a state would turn over its own legislative and regulatory authority to another state just doesn't make much sense to me. So I think there's a really valid you know, challenge to that to right. that law. So I hope it succeeds. And if it does succeed, does that mean the state would have their own standards that they could do, or is it just defaulting back to federal uh, federal regulations? Well, like I said, not attorney, but I, of course. I think it would default to the federal. I believe so too. That's what it yeah. sounds like. Because uh, then again, uh, that whole chaos of trying to mandate each state having their own power for this would be an interesting process moving forward uh, in a different a different tackle, which sounds like nobody wants anyway. Um, yeah. I mean, that's not to say too, I think the federal regulations are concerning as well. Yes. The federal EPA, um, you know, 
heavy-duty emissions regulations also are very concerning. And I know the industry is is trying to fight for more realistic, um, you know, doable uh, emission standards there as well. Right. And I know, so Virginia, when they're fighting it, they're fighting it, uh, I think it's a legislative, they have a House bill that's trying to get through, that did get through uh, to get out of uh, under CARB's regulations, but likely going to sh- be shot down in uh, in their Senate. I believe Pennsylvania as well. It passed the House uh, for fighting it legislatively to get out under CARB and again, likely going to be shot down in the Senate legislatively. Are you a part of that legislative process as well? Yes, that was the first thing we tried. Um, we had a bill introduced in the uh, in the House. Um, our members testified in a hearing uh, and the legislators agreed that it was a valid concern and wanted us to try to get out from under CARB. So, um, and I will say, uh, even the Department of Environmental Protection in Pennsylvania understands that this was a concern for the industry. Right. They realized that in 2022, um, the only difference uh, was the warranty. It was the same engine. So they actually issued a suspension of enforcement right. order. Um, and uh, so they aren't actually enforcing the the regulation right now in Pennsylvania. Um, But one of the problems with that suspension order is that it actually leaves companies, both dealers and buyers of trucks, liable for a challenge. So if a private entity wanted to challenge them in court um, for not following the the regulation, that could be done. So that's a concern for us. Um, So we did uh, ask for a... um, a legal change, and there was a bill introduced in the House that year. It did pass the House, and um, it, it got over to the Senate, but it, it got all the way to the very you know, end of the process. It just wasn't considered at the end of um, the session right. um, in the Senate. So this year, we actually have a bill that moved in the Senate, um, and it would suspend enforcement of CARB through uh, and address the liability concern, too through uh, model year uh, 2020, until model year 2027. So at least it's a delay. Um, and right. that has passed the Senate and now it's in the House. Um, okay. It hasn't yet been considered in the House. And so just remind me, the viewers, um, so the legislative process uh, in the state, each state <laughs> has the process, create new bills, they have a timeline to try to get it passed, and then the end of the session happens. When's the start of that process? So uh, each session in Pennsylvania is two years, okay. um, and we just had a session start this year, so the 2023-24 legislative session. So all bills that um, are introduced, that were introduced last session, have to be reintroduced this Correct. session. So um, we got you know, that particular bill reintroduced this session, and it has to pass either the House or the Senate, whichever house it's introduced in um, and then it has to go over to the other uh, the other chamber and be passed there and then be signed by the governor and of course there's committees that it has to go through as a part of that process too usually the transportation committees um, in our case Um, so that's that's where we are that that bill has passed um, in the senate committee made it all the way through uh, passed finally in the house on the house excuse me on the senate floor and then got over to the uh, House chamber and now is um, in the House Transportation Committee and hasn't been considered yet there. Right. And so obviously all of this is surrounding, you know, obviously zero emissions, uh, electrification that's that's coming, uh, diesel trucks. Do you see that still being the future? Is it a long-term thing? Obviously you want to slow it down to just be able to handle a transition, but is this inevitable? 
Is the transition to electric inevitable? Electrical or zero emissions, whatever that's defined as. Well, I think um, I think we don't know that yet. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, the trucking industry is going to be diesel for a, a long time yet. Um, Especially I, long haul. I mean. Yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, but that said, I do think there are certain sectors of the industry that it makes sense to be looking at other options, and they are looking at other options. So some of those options are electric, but I don't want to discount things like CNG, LNG, um, and mm -hmm. hydrogen is coming too. Yes. So part of the issue that I have with um, mandates, like CARBs mandates, um, that are pushing us sort of ahead of the technology, I have a real issue with that because um, because we want to let the technology develop um, because we may be making decisions now that, you know, set us up for failure in the future. Because who's to say that we're not going to develop the perfect solution for, for instance, long-haul trucks and hydrogen. Right. But if we're going to mandate uh, no emissions uh, electric vehicles now, we're not going to allow the time for us to develop that technology that over the longer term is going to be uh, much better for the environment and for the industry. Yep. So I think we have to be... Uh, you know, give a little grace to the uh, time period that it takes to develop these technologies and be realistic about what the industry needs out of the technology. Because if we go too fast, um, A, we're going to be making um, probably poor choices for the environment and B, uh, for the industry. Uh, and everybody knows how important the trucking industry is. We do not want to set it up for failure. And I mean, that makes complete sense. Uh, and then we're also in this environment where President Biden passed the infrastructure bills, which uh, has a big influx of money into this EV transition process. In the state of Pennsylvania, there's a lot of uh, discussion of, uh, you know, charging stations. Um, obviously, you know, there's regulations on, um, you know, what kind of vehicles, uh, smaller vehicles, what the charging uh, standards are. But for heavy, medium and heavy duty trucks, there's no standard yet for charging stations specifically. But while there's this long term or even short, this quick discussion on infrastructure, electric charging infrastructure in Pennsylvania, is PMTA still in this process of sort of, hey, make sure that there's drive through charging stations for truckers eventually keep that plan in place or? Well, I think we have to be aware of that. Um, I've had a lot of conversations with PennDOT lately on truck parking mm. because I am actually, um, you know, the chair of study that they're doing right now on truck parking. And I try to bring this up from time to time when we talk about freight planning, truck parking, that type of stuff. And um, luckily, we're not uh, pushing the industry into electric right now in Pennsylvania. However, surrounding states are. Right. So uh, those trucks in surrounding states are going to need to drive through Pennsylvania and stop at Pennsylvania rest areas. Yep. So that's one of the things that I do bring up um, when I get the chance, that we need to give some thought to the charging infrastructure um, for sure. And we know that charging trucks is just worlds different than charging cars. Completely. And I just saw, I'm sure you saw it too, Atri uh, study on electric charging infrastructure that just one one truck stop that they used as a pilot would be the equivalent of 15,000 homes. So a lot of these charging, um, a lot of these truck stops and a lot of rest areas that we're talking about are um, in rural areas where there's not a lot of infrastructure, period, not to mention like Correct. truck parking or even roads. There's just not a lot of infrastructure, period. So we do not have the electric infrastructure to uh, to build 
to build out those charging stations right now. So it's absolutely something that needs to be thought of and something that I try to bring up. But um, when we talk about truck parking, we know there's not enough parking spaces for trucks as it is. One for every 11 drivers is nowhere near enough. And we know of a major problem in Pennsylvania. So um, if you're talking about building charging infrastructure you, and you're talking about going electric, you're gonna have charging stations for all those truck parking spaces too. Exactly. Right. So, we don't would be already don't have enough uh, right. truck parking. So we're talking billions and billions of dollars. So I just say that, that we need to be realistic about how we're approaching this. Well, and it makes sense because obviously, uh, I mean, Tesla, Tesla semis uh, coming and in California, I think Pepsi is the one that has them, Frito-Lay. Yeah. And they were like, okay, well, we'll, we'll build a charging station uh, on site for Frito-Lay. That includes a solar powered uh, charging plant so they have infrastructure for that uh, and that costs hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, 50,000 or 100,000 I forget what the number is but uh, it, it doesn't matter because the idea is whether it's truck parking whether it's these uh, gas stations that are looking to expand it's not just charging infrastructure it's solar mm -hmm. uh, it's where are you going to get the energy for it like I know uh, was it Ohio Pennsylvania um, on the turnpike they're looking to do electric charging under the roadway. Uh, so charging while you drive. And their goal was, it's, it's fascinating technology if it especially gets to the point where it makes sense, mm -hmm. let alone trucking's a lot more energy needed. So it, would it even work for trucking? Who knows? But if that happens, I mean, again, that's using, their plan is to build a solar field to charge or be able to handle that charging. And you got to think, you just mentioned um, infrastructure in general. We don't have space for not just the charging, but then the solar or however else they're going to get the electricity. It's an interesting dilemma. Well, and not only that, but I talk about the you know lack of truck parking now. Generally, we're hearing from members that if you're going to replace trucks with electric trucks, it's a one to two uh, proposition. So you really right. have to buy two electric trucks to replace that one diesel truck. Um, and that has to do with a lot of things, you know, charging time, your drivers using your driver's time effectively. Um, and you know, a lot of the components that go into driving an electric truck. Well, imagine twice the trucks on the road too, and what that means for infrastructure. Um, so there's just really a lot to think about and we just have to be very careful, uh, with mandates. Yeah, and I I, know, I follow the the California stuff with Tesla too because, I mean, they're anticipating trying to get to fifty thousand new trucks every every year produced. Uh, I think by twenty twenty five, end of twenty twenty four, twenty twenty five really is their goal, which is incredible to think that there's only two hundred three hundred thousand trucks produced annually. That that would be a huge chunk of that. But then at the same time, Elon's specifically saying the electric infrastructure grid needs to grow three x by like. 10 or 20 years uh, to handle all of this transition. And so it's just, there's so much potentially changing and happening and it's quick. And it's like, again, that taking that step back, I can see why that's definitely needed. Um, I'm just curious, any other other things carriers can do now, whether they're a member of PMTA or not a member of PMTA that they can be involved in these processes? Sure. Well, um, we have all, a lot of information on our website, um, and we do post information about all the things that we're involved with there. We have an emissions-specific website there. We uh, have truck parking information. Obviously, any news that comes out of Harrisburg, we'll post that as well. Um, we, uh, we didn't talk a lot of detail about the CARB lawsuit that we filed. 
Um, but we do have, you know, the link there from information yep. about that. Um, so always, you always can check out our website. Um, give us a call if you have any questions. We're happy to help. And are there other things that PMTA is looking forward to uh, moving forward? I and mean, we touched, I think there were like three or four things they were talking about moving forward. Are there anything else that we've missed that uh, PMTA is looking at? This is budget season in Harrisburg. So uh, statutorily, they are supposed to have a budget passed by the end of uh, June. So it's a crazy time in the Capitol right now where they all try to get, um, you know, all the bills passed that they want to get before they take a break for the summer. So there's a couple of things that we're watching right now in Harrisburg. Um, and one is, um, and both sort of fall into the category of, of transportation funding generally, because as we've said, uh, Pennsylvania is the third most expensive state in the country. Um, we're one of them. We have the highest diesel tax in the country here in Pennsylvania, if you count sales tax on yep. top. Um, and uh, we have very high registration fees for trucks here in Pennsylvania, too. So we're doing what we can to make the state more business friendly for trucks. Um, because it's just such an important industry for the entire uh, economic, um, you know, condition of the state just generally. Right. Um, but so uh, infrastructure spending is very important to us because we pay generally almost 40 percent of the taxes for infrastructure here in Pennsylvania. Trucks do. Um, so we want to make sure our infrastructure funds are spent efficiently and that there's sufficient funding to fund infrastructure um, and one of the bills we're supporting right now would would put a, a fee on electric vehicles because we were talking about that electric cars specifically. Um, we have a, a tax that is supposed to be remitted on electric use monthly right. um, in Pennsylvania, and it's not widely um, followed. People aren't aware of it. It's not promoted. It's difficult. I mean, you have to send a check to the Department of Revenue. No one really likes to do that. So this would just put a fee um, annually uh, as part of your registration on on top of um, uh, a vehicle fee for an electric right. car. So that would put some um, some more funding into the motor license fund in here, Pennsylvania, that can be used for um, infrastructure, for roads and bridges. Uh, and we think that's fair because otherwise electric vehicles obviously don't pay gas tax. Um, and then the other thing that we're supporting is to... Um, start to move state police funding out of the motor license fund. We're all in favor of supporting our partners in law enforcement. Uh, obviously don't want them to be underfunded. We, we want them to be supported as much yeah. as possible. But those funds um, are specifically meant for roads and bridges and infrastructure development. So uh, we're supportive of a bill that would shift that state police funding uh, from the motor license fund uh, to, to shift it to go from come from other areas. Right. Um, so that would put more funding back into the motor license fund to make sure that we're taking care of our infrastructure properly. Good. So good. Um, that's sort of another thing we do is, is keep an eye on how um, our infrastructure funds are spent and, um, and make sure that our roads and bridges are going to be well taken care of in the future. So. That's great. Thank you so much for joining me today, Rebecca. There's a lot that we covered, a lot of ways people can get involved. So reach out to uh, us in the comments below. Is there anything that you want to know more about? Uh, if, is, is there something you are a part of that you want to talk about? Uh, but of course, follow uh, Rebecca, uh, the PMTA on social media. I know they're on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Uh, and of course, um, you know, their website as well. Stay up to date. We'll do our best to pass along the information as well from the PMTA. And uh, with that, thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us. And as always, stay safe out there.